You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour and they have too many thoughts coming in. And it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and, you know, text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts. And so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. Ninety percent of thought you don't even think about. How much – and how much of this has to do with social media TV watching, reading, yeah. reading. Interesting, right? And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media and your your brain at one level is still processing it. And then you might actually bring it into the, the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head and I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts that I bring up. I mean I'm sure if I talked to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some, some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts, are they stay in your head because of energy, right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head. And to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, the thought about scheduling, your appointment. They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed. Uh, appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't, they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important, like don't forget to pick up your kids. Don't forget to unplug the iron. All of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything. See, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar. That energy would help eliminate the thoughts. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my report's due tomorrow? And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, 
do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so, maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon, and that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, and that, I mean, that you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you at all at one time, yeah. how do you prioritize and say, let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it'll go away? Well, I might do it this when you had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm, I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say, let me go check on that. I would say, right, let me check. And I check right now because I'm doing it now. So I don't, otherwise I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads. Or, you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, band-aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line. And then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to, uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes. And they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight or flight part of your brain. The fight or flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. 
But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our our fight or flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively for the need to protect, you know, don't make fun of my high school as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's they're just their threats. And it's it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program, um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly. One of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is, um, is more when my kids like question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than um, – or my, ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name. They can say whatever they want. But when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed. You guys got to go to bed. And they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are. And, and generally, I, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable if you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if I'm loved, if I, if I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable, or when I feel unsafe, those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found. Um, lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it. What triggers you to you know to go off? What What's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out of an, a discussion with your wife? Is it that every time she brings something up, do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable, if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff? You question if you're loved or do you question, um, you know, if you're going to be safe physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially. So once you start to become more aware, then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you. I mean, I found a lot of times... Just breathing, taking a deep breath helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, another thing I found is a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, one fast way to do that, by the way, is math. If, if you would take a million and count down from one million by 17s, I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up. <laughs> Right. And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this, and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh, ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom. They have so much structure and so many rules to, to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps 
the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean, think about it. You have people in a court system that truly do not like each other. They hate each other, but there's so much process that that is demanding their brain power. Otherwise, they lose the case, right? They, they'll get the judge mad at them, so they follow the protocol. And when you follow the protocol, the process is nice and slow and methodical, and the protocol keeps you from reacting, overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our in our relationship. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a have to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off that there's some protocols we're going to follow. We're going to learn to recognize each other emotion each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion, explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion there's a story. And if I can let the person that's I'm, that we're, I'm struggling with, that I'm arguing with, share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starve stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call – it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80% of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we, you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I, I affirm. And you just – you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side. And I have a different side. And then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by – saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills, and they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day, and you know what? You learn You learn to do it. This stuff works. Um, it, it's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill, and you can learn to do it, and the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh, that's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Are you feeling dissatisfied with your purpose in life? If you are, it might start with clocking in, you know, bidding your time and then clocking out. If you feel like a zombie with no purpose or you uh, you feel like you're in despair, there's no way out of this. Today on the show, we uh, we may have the perfect guest for you. Dan Pontefract joins us, author of The Purpose Effect. Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. Dan is the Chief Envisioner at TELUS, a Canadian telecommunications company, and he's uh, written extensively on the topic of purpose. And, Dan, we're honored to have you here. Thanks for being with us. Matt, it's a delight. Happy morning to you. Thank you, and happy morning to you. Uh, Purpose, you know what? 
if you don't have it, I, 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 I wonder how you get through life without having a sense of where you're going and why you're here. Is it, is it a, I have it. I, I don't know where I got it. I just grew up kind of knowing where, what I wanted and, and, and what created a, a, a moment, like what's the word, created a, a power in me to want to become more. What, are there a lot of people that don't have that? Well, you're one of the lucky ones, and I think I am as well. But uh, research proves that there are only about, uh, depending on what research survey, 20 to 25 percent of us that actually hmm. have found their purpose in life that corresponds to what they're doing at work. So, yeah, both of you, both you and I are lucky. It really is 20 percent. I mean, and I see it in my other work where I where I'm working with couples and people that are just so frustrated with life and their job and and the energy and purpose i guess is something then we can go track down right we can go intentionally intentionally start trying to find our purpose well i think what i've seen happen though is that um you know people will they go through high school they might go to college and let's say those that do even you know they come out of that and they're like well i need to work right so there's almost there's almost like a de facto well you know, that job that I just take to pay the bills has now become sort of, you know, a third, a quarter, maybe even half of my purpose. And that's when things start to really go awry. It's, it's as though there's a default, uh, you know what, that's my job and that's also part of my purpose. And I hate it, but, uh, you know, that's the way life is. So they, <laughs> it's almost like a, they fall into a crutch of apathy. It's true, huh? And it's you've been handed kind of the role of your job, but and then I guess you have a family, and they might they bring you purpose, except maybe not. And then I mean, it's almost like a lot of things are handed to you, and you bring up in your models, um, your organization you work for might give you a purpose, your job might give you a purpose. Talk about uh, your book, The Purpose Effect: Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. How? How do you go about, I guess, creating a, that that sweet spot between all of those? Well, I, I truly believe, and I think through the interviews, the research, uh, my own personal experience, and, and maybe on the, the revision of this book, Matt, I'll have to interview you. But uh, it really it starts with you. You know, it, we, all, we all put on our socks or our dresses or shoes, whatever it is, in the morning, and we've got to look in the mirror and we've got to brush our teeth. And, and I think a lot of people are forgetting about that mirror, you know, and, and so really the book is about a Venn diagram. And for those that don't know what that means, a Venn diagram is just three circles. And there's an intersection point in the middle. And all three circles sort of overlap one another, right, to get to that middle middle point. So at the top of the Venn, the first circle is, is you. It's your personal purpose. You know, what are you about? Uh, why are you here? Uh, how are you going to show up each and every day? Like those are some kind of key fundamental questions. Do you have dislikes? Do you have likes? Like, do you know what drives you? Do you know what you want to steer clear of? If you're a postal worker but, but don't enjoy physical exercise, <laughs> it, it's, it's going to be pretty problematic. <laughs> Torture. The bottom two circles. Right. Right? And the two bottom circles quickly are organizational purpose. So what does the organization stand for? Again, if you're, if you're into environmentalism and you work for oil and gas, maybe not a great spot for you, right? <laughs> and then on the the left, the far left uh, circle, is role purpose. So we all, you're right, we all have a role. We, 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 we have a job at, at work. So 
if what you're doing inside of that role, even though you may like the organization, let's say, but if the if the job requirements are such that you're you're aghast aghast with or against, you know, you're just you're going to fall out of misalignment essentially. And and so anyway, if the good news is that if there's an alignment between the personal purpose, who you are, what you're about, how you're going to show up each and every day, you really enjoy the organization's purpose, what it's doing to serve society, and we can come back to that in a bit, and you enjoy your role at work, if this all intersects, you you have a sweet spot, but ironically, so does the organization. So it's really a book mm-hmm. written for leaders in the org and you as an individual person as well. So if I were in HR hiring somebody, it would be smart for me to try to find somebody who's who has a personal purpose and that purpose fits into their role I'm hiring for and the organizational purpose that then then I've got probably their full capacity yeah, precisely I mean if, if you were someone let's say in HR and you're hiring a marketing manager and and they are a marketing manager fantastic and so they've got you know 10 years of experience in marketing okay so you bring them into the organization uh, but for whatever reason, you know, they, you forgot to ask the questions about what widget is that you're selling. And maybe they are against widget B. And let's call widget B cars for some reason. So they don't like cars, okay? But before, they were marketing beer. <laughs> they were much better, and they really enjoy beer. But for some reason, they take public transit, and they're not into cars. Like, <laughs> that's going to come out in their work, and they're right. going to fall into what I call the job mindset in their role. And so the organization suffers because you have a disengaged employee now. And as it turns out, that poor individual that's now joined the organization, you know, they sort of forgot to ask those questions of themselves. Why do I want to work at an automobile company uh, if, you know, I enjoy beer better? Yeah. And so they fell, fall into a sort of a state of disrepair in their life. And so that affects, as you'll know, with your background and your work, you know, that affects the home, that affects the community, that affects the kids or the family. So, And, and we need the job, the the but Dan, we need the job, right? So I'm just going to get the job because I need the job. And But if we're not thinking about the purpose of the company I'm going to work for, and if it doesn't jive with me, you, you like you're saying, you've got a job. What was the name you call that? It's a, uh, it ends up, it just ends up, it's just going to suck the life out of you. Yeah, it becomes hedonic. Yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. Uh, you know, hedonic, one of those fancy words. Yeah. yeah it's just like it's, it's like a paycheck. It's very transactional. And but what so if I love the company, up? but I hate my role in the company? Like, I don't want to be in sales. I want to be in content creation. And you keep wanting me to be in sales. And then I might love the job. And I might even think I need to be in this company. But I don't like what I mean. I I love my company. But and I feel a purpose in it. But I don't like what I do every day. Then you're going to lose me, too. Well, I'll give you a personal example, right? So, And you're right. So this is the responsibility of the leader in this case. So let's say you're leader X. And in my case, I was a director of what was called uh, education services. And so I'm at a high-tech company. It's about, um, about nine years ago now. And this woman, Megan, uh, was on my team, and she was a, a courseware developer, like an instructional designer. So she made courseware for some of the products that we were doing. Uh, and... And one day, you know, I'm looking around, I'm like, you know, Megs, is this, is this for you? Or maybe, you know, is there something else that you want to do? I mean, you're good at this, but I'm not sure your heart's in it. And now I know you like our company. Our company is about 9,000 people and 
very philanthropic company. She was really into all the good, you know, higher purpose things of the org. And after a few conversations, Megs and I, she's like, you know what? I want to help people. And I was like, okay, well, let's get you into HR. Let's figure out a way to career path you into HR. Now, I was losing a phenomenal resource, um, but the organization stood to lose the resource in totality Mm. if she left. Yeah, yeah. So I think leaders have to sort of put park their egos at the door, so to say. It's kind of like, um, do you remember um, We Are the World? Uh-huh. And, uh, and Spring, Springsteen came to the studio, and he put a, a note on the door, and it said, "Park, tra- check your ego at the door before entering. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, it's sort of like that. You, you, leaders have to do that. And so Megs has gone into HR, and now she's been there for the last, well, nine years, and she loved it. No, to- I, had a, I had a boss that um, basically got me my launch, helped me launch my career. He had the highest turnover in the company because he, that's what he would do is help everybody make their <laughs> dreams come true. But he had the highest, um, he had the highest uh, sales percentages of anyone in the company because they'd all work really hard. And then as soon as they accomplished goals, they had win-wins, and then he'd move them to the next place in the company where they all would want to be. And it it was so fulfilling because you knew you were working for a purpose. And you're touching on two things, right? So you're touching on the leader who is selfless. Mm -hmm. And and that's really what leaders ought to be, is selfless, thinking out for the higher good of both the individual employee they lead, the team that they serve, and the organization that they contribute to, right? So there's the selfless part. But... You're also actually, interestingly, um, knocking on the door of selfishness. Mm-hmm. And the selfish leaders, which are, again, they are a dime a dozen in our, in our industries and right. our organizations, they will hoard the resource. They'll protect. Yeah, They'll keep it in. They'll ensure that they can. Yeah, like it's, that's, that's where the maniacal nature of the beast of the organization comes to fruition. And the poor, helpless employee is like, well, I guess I'm stuck here. <laughs> so it's, again, it's all interconnected. It's like an ecosystem gone wrong. That's right. And what was interesting about this guy, too, is he, everybody in the company trusted him as kind of the incubator. Um, mm-hmm. And what he would do is he'd create a win-win. Like my win-win with him was for four months. He asked me where I wanted to be. I wanted to be a consultant, a speaker, a trainer, a content developer. And he needed sales out of me. And what they wanted as a company, they wanted all the people that were going to be kind of in the sales and client services division to go through his department. So I, he, he told me I, what kind of – what he needed was were sales, what I needed to move on. We created an agreement that allowed me in four months of hitting certain numbers under certain conditions, he would personally move me to where I wanted to be. And it, it empowered me so much, but he still got his win. And um, and because and every by the way, everybody in the group was different. Some wanted a better title so they could go to grad school. Some wanted uh, you know better pay because they had kids, and some wanted to just move on. And he would find out what each of us wanted. And by the way, which which I guess is connected to our purpose, right? Yes, that's exactly it. So the the myopic leader who is only in it for herself or himself and is only thinking about their own performance objectives, their bonus targets, like just for them. That creates this uh, this beast. But when you have, sure, okay, so your guy in this case got what, out of it what he wanted, but he also knows he's there to serve the organization's higher purpose, mm-hmm. which is fueling talent, right? Whether, right. as you say, by career development and someone wanting a better title or moving on, in your case, to another part of the org. 
there, I, I don't know. Similarly, it's kind of a correlated uh, point here. If only about 20% of us have a purpose in life and at work, the uh, same sort of research suggests that there are only about 20 to 30% of us engaged in right. our roles at work, and that includes the leaders. Oh, That's crazy. Totally. Let's take a, ba- a break, Dan. Come back. I want you to walk us through some things we could do to find our purpose uh, on the personal level and the organizational as well as our role. Uh, interesting insight, folks. As you're out there listening, is this your organization? Do you notice that only 20% of the people you're sitting around are engaged? They do feel like their purpose is being manifested through this process of work and their role there. Stick with us. We're going to uncover it more with Dan Pontefract when we come back. the Matt Townsend Show. So if I put a microphone up to you and ask, what is your purpose in life? What would you say? Would you know? Now, that's a big kind of life purpose issue. But you need to know why you're here, what you're about, how you want to contribute to the world, how you want to be remembered. That's how I learned to do this is by thinking about, okay, when all is said and done and they're, you know, there's putting... Matt Townsend underneath the ground. How do I want my kids to think about me, my family, my coworkers? And it helped me find more and more about my purpose. And then I, I actually could just keep narrowing it down to one or two or three things. But um, as our guest today, Don Pontefract is joined. Dan Pontefract is joining us. He's the author of the book The Purpose Effect. Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. He has been teaching us that uh, there's three things. We need to, to, to find purpose in and, and make sure they align in an effort to find our sweet spot at work. And we have to have our personal purpose, our uh, organizational purpose. We have to kind of buy into the company, buy into the organization we're working with and, and feel connected to that. And we also have to buy into our role in that company. And when those three things come together, bada boom, bada bing, you found your sweet spot. So, Dan Pontefract, welcome back to the show. Thanks for uh, helping us with this. Thanks, Matt. I'm really delighted to be here. Talk to us more then um, as we go through the the process of finding purpose. How do you how do you suggest we identify it? Well, if you're trying to find your personal sense of sweet spot, right? So, you know, we all have to work forty ish hours a week. We all have to pay rent or mortgage, car payments, you know, kids' tuition, whatever the case may be. We have to work. So let's recognize that it's very difficult to find so-called purpose if you're not looking at the 168 hours we all have in a week. So that's step one. Mm. Like I, I find that people who truly find the sweet spot recognize that that life is comprised of the things you do personally and the things you do professionally. So that's kind of step one. But what I often help people with is sort of the, the likes-dislike game. Yeah. So in your life, in personal purpose, what are those likes of yours and your dislikes? Just get a, a piece of paper out, a whiteboard, whatever. Just start writing them down and just take a look at that. And hopefully you've got more likes and dislikes and start, you know, putting the likes together into into sort of pockets or, or categories or, you know, circles. Say, oh, look at where these are trending to and do the same thing for the dislikes. 
But then, you know, I often ask people then to say, okay, now don't look at your boss, don't look at your team, don't look at your job, but just look at the organization you work for. Just start doing the same thing. The likes-dislikes games. What are the things that are really making you happy, if you will, about your organization? You know, if you're really into community service, does your organization deliver community service? Hmm. And if so, what are some of the things that you like? Same thing on the dislike side. Is it a company that is too focused on profit or too focused, in some cases, on shareholder return? Like some of these deep, entrenched, uh, arguably flaws in, of the organization. If there are too many of those, you know, you might, might want to cluster those and right. say, wow, that's a lot of dislikes. But then finally, go back to your job. And your job, your role, as I say, is, is really important because that's where you're, you're spending the predominant portion of your time of a work week, of the waking hours in a work week, Monday to Friday, right? So, again, do the like-dislike thing and just sort of say to yourself, you know what, and then kind of look at all three and say, huh, well, this is some interesting finding, and it's really easy exercise to do. Is this... But then... Oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was just going to say, as a manager, uh, I would love to bring you in, and then I start thinking, man, Dan, if I bring you in and you have all my people starting to question if they should be here, that's, many would think that's, that's a dangerous thing, but really, you're unleashing potential. That's the best word you could use. I think you should write a book called Unleash Your Potential. I'm going to write that that's down exactly right there. What, that, that's exactly the point. So the, the next, I guess, tip or step I suggest for people is to then take a look at all those likes and even the dislikes, right? But um, you've heard of a company's mission statement, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that we, we, as individuals, as humans, fail to define our own mission. And so, essentially, I call it the, the declaration of purpose. So what's your declaration of purpose? What's that one line or two lines that defines you, that's going to decide how you show up each and every day, and that will ultimately give you your development path? And it's just, it's sort of like your North Star. Hmm. It's this, oh, I keep coming back to this one or two lines. could be three lines. There's no right or wrong answer here in length. But it's that definition of who you are, how you're going to show up, and, and what you're all about. And, and so that's you. Yeah. And, and then you've got to start asking those deeper questions with, with your colleagues, with your boss, maybe, I hope. Yeah. You have an open relationship right, with others and just say, where do I fit? You know, like my story about Megan, like the story about your boss and yeah. where you were and, and how you, quote, graduated to the, the next part of the organization. Like, that's, that's what we need. What do you do if you find yourself after you've done your purpose kind of statement and you find your, you, the ladder's against the wrong wall? It's actually in the wrong stadium. Yeah. So, again, that goes back to the reality. Like, I'm not, um, I'm not unpragmatic. I understand. No, you've got to pay the bills. More, exactly, right? So, so within the organization that you're working for, I start talking with your boss, other colleagues, HR, like, start thinking about things like, um, hey, could I go do, like, a, a one-week rotation in that role over there, maybe, and try to work that out? Or, mm. or even just do some shadowing. You know, what, what, are, what are some ways for you to get involved, maybe, in a cross-departmental project? How do you sort of insert yourself into the equation saying, you know what, I know I'm in IT, or I know I'm in HR, but I'd like to go work on this finance project. Is there a way that I could perhaps be part of that team for three months? And just, you know, that's the whole point of, 
we, we all ought to be uh, better autodidacts, right? The, another word that basically says we should be um, self-developing. And, and you really are in charge of your own development path. So if right. you don't say anything, no one's ever going to stick up for you. You've got you to gotta take the bull by the horn, so to say. Bada bing, bada boom, to your final <laughs> point. And I guess what's great about that, so if I, if I have my personal purpose and I'm in an organization and a role that I don't like, I, could, I don't have to throw it all away and go start again. I can go leverage where I am, try to start growing myself into a different role purpose, and then I'll have two of the three of the Venn diagram, the, the three legs of the stool we're trying to build here. And then that might give me, you know, notoriety in in my new area, my new role to go get a different job, or maybe I'll see the company differently because I'm in a different part of the company. Or you might even create a whole new role. Yeah. Like that that's the outside the box kind of thinking, right? So a personal example. So when I joined Telus, the the, the company you mentioned, uh, the Telus uh, communi- or sorry, the telecom communi- company in Canada, I joined in uh, November of 2008 as a chief learning officer. And so there I am helping the organization with culture, with purpose, with leadership, with learning, and so forth. I'm about uh, three and a half years into the gig, and things are going really well. Uh, and, I, and I love it. I'm in a sweet spot. The, the organization is doing great. I'm ha- everybody. Like, it's just fantastic. Mm. But I knew that come to the end of about the five-year mark, maybe a bit afterward, I knew that I would become bored. And so what I did was I started my own kind of rotations into the sales organization, and I started to create this idea with our C-suite that perhaps we could create a function that was an external consulting operation that would help our customers with their own culture, engagement, purpose, quest. Mm. And so two years after that sort of idea, we launched at Telus an external consulting shop, which of which I'm now the chief envisioner of. <laughs> bada so boom, bada bing. That's great. <laughs> but my, yeah, my point is, I think you can also chart your own course right. if you have that type of background and you know ultimately uh, support. You know, and I guess that's so empowering that for some that are out there thinking, well, yeah, that's easy for Dan because he's smart and has all of this stuff. But maybe that's what happens when you're on purpose is it gives you more hope. It gives you more vision. It gives you more energy, more capacity to do more, to create well, more. A, exactly. So there's a story of Tim McDonald. He's a realtor in Chicago, and he, he kind of likes realty, and he's doing fine. But he's like, you know what? I'm missing more. I, I need a team. I need a community. So he builds out this community, online community uh, company, essentially, and he's teaching people how to be community managers in the early 2000s when, you know, like community discussion groups and forums were just starting, right? He gets a call from Arianna Huffington of the Huffington Post. She says, she says, wow, I love what you're doing. Could you move to New York and can you set up HuffPost Live? And Tim's like, oh my gosh, what just happened? So (laughs) his family, they moved to New York and they're working at Huffington Post. And he's doing it. He's in it for about four years. He's loving it. He's loving it. But he goes and does a keynote in Dallas at a, sort of a philanthropy conference. And he sees this group on stage called Be the Change. He's like, Be the Change? What are they talking about? And they're talking about how to curb um, the sort of the, the lack of um, food for kids, like malnourishment in kids across America. Hmm. He's like, and so he had an epiphany. 
Now, here he is from Chicago as a relatively successful realtor to working beside Ariana Huffington, no less, to going to this sort of happenstance conference. And he's like, actually, that's what I'm about. And he, he sort of networked with the Be the Change organization to see if he could find a role wow. in that team yeah. shortly thereafter. So I guess my other point is, it really is up to you. It doesn't have to be in that organization. Mm-hmm. He went from making lots of money to less money. But this is what happened to him. He needed to fulfill that sweet spot for himself. Even though he was with Ariana Huffington, he enjoyed it, but he still said there was something more missing, and, and he went out and, and found it. Yeah. Ooh. that's uh, Again, it's that's powerful. I guess that's the, the purpose effect, right? Building meaning in yourself, your role, in your organization. Um, as we wrap yeah. up, give me – I always like to ask the one thing. What's the one thing that we could do today – that would have the biggest effect on me starting to find that purpose and, and drive it to my sweet spot? I think we all have to remember that uh, we are in charge of our own journey and that no one is going to pave the path unless you hold the shovel. Hmm. You got to start digging. You got to start digging, Matt. That's cool. Dan Pontefract, thank you so much for your great uh, insight. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Good luck, everyone. Best of luck to you. The Purpose Effect, building meaning in yourself, your role, and your organization. You can find out more about Dan at uh, danpontefract.com. danpontefract.com. Excellent stuff, folks. You got to start digging. It's your shovel, right? It's your world. It's not going to be paved without your work. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Helping you become the best you can become. That's the goal of the show. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. When we talk about purpose, part of uh, this in our last hour, we we got into what makes an Olympian? Is it just exercise? I mean, is it just the work ethic? Is it 10,000 hours? Is it practice that makes perfect? But maybe the real answer is purpose. You got to have a purpose and know what your life is about. Um, so dig in deep. Go go take, uh, go take. start making that list of what you like and what you dislike. Go start to think about how you want to be remembered when you're done with this whole test called Earth. Um, because how you want to end it is pretty important. What you want people to say at your funeral is pretty important. Ironically, we have a, a crazy story of a man who wrote his own obituary, and then he banned certain relatives from the funeral. A German man has taken his grudges to the grave. This may not be, I guess it is, exactly how he wanted to be remembered. Telling relatives in a posthumous newspaper notice that some of them aren't welcome at his funeral. Hubert Martini published his own obituary in a local newspaper in Western Germany. And uh, it's interesting, usually Ben's here to speak German for us, right? But Ben's not here anymore. Ben has has left the building. But Jeff Simpson's here, and Jeff uh, also knows German. Accents. (laughs) (laughs) So here's what I want you to do. This is, this is what uh, Hubert Martini said, right? The, he describes himself as three things. Jeff, in German, what are those three things? The three words I would use to describe myself would be open, 
honest and unforgiving. Beautiful. You know, when it's said in a little bit of a German accent, it makes it so much more beautiful. He's open, he's honest, he's unforgiving, and says his five siblings and their families are forbidden or forboden. Forboden. Forboden from attending his memorial service. They're forboden, folks. That's how you want to go down, being remembered like that. In uh, in his notes, um, he, he wanted the last word on his life, and this is his last line. I have hurt some people, and that is good. <laughs> oh, boy. Bless Hubert Martini for teaching us a great lesson. And they, I think, apparently named a drink after him. Crazy, crazy stuff. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered by not allowing five families to come to your funeral? I don't know, folks. It's a short life. Let's make it a better one. Let's make it so everyone can come. And let's have ribs. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the show. Stick with us, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. We talk about uh, loving families and we've got to build families. And you may even do and, and believe strongly in your family that you know, one of you uh, needs needs to stay home and be with the family and raise your family. And there's a lot of pressure to, to how do you make ends meet when, like we heard earlier, it's really hard without a dual income to make ends meet. Um, so at some point, we have to we have to really co-parent. We have to learn to, to be together as parents um, on our family issues. I see a lot of parenting issues dividing couples up. And we fight about things, we fight about chores, and we fight about discipline, and we fight about everything, right? So at some point, we need to, we need to figure out how to, how to work better together. And I wanted to give you some ideas um, that, uh, that, that might help as we, as we go through life. One idea that I think is super important is if, if it's not working in your family, if you don't feel like you're working really well together – um, as a as a partnership, one of my I, I mean, a lot of times we would just blame one partner. You know, he's not helping out, she's not helping out. But one of the things that I teach, and it's, it happens to be one of my favorite um, quotes, because just symbolically, I think it, it means a lot. It says uh, the the quote is simply that all systems reflect their creator. Okay, so if a system is really one sided then um, it, there may be uh, – the issue may not be just willingness from everyone else. It may be that whoever's creating the system has created it in a one-sided way. And an example of this is simply um, if you notice that no one else around the house helps, is there something you are doing that might be enabling others to not help? Uh, for example, have you made it so that the level of, of quality – for what has to be done can really only be accomplished by you, or at least it could only be accomplished by you in the beginning. For example, how you clean a dish, how you uh, wash something, 
Um, is it just have you gotten to the point that it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to not let others do it because they don't seem to do it right? Um, and so, but think about that because almost inevitably, when I see somebody who has nobody helping around the house, many times I see that same person being a perfectionist. And nobody in the house feels like they can do it to your level. They don't they, – they've been critiqued so many times. There's too much intensity about it um, or there's fear about how they can get it done. So start to ask yourself, what are you doing or not doing to enable you or your partner to not be as involved in the parenting? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. What are you thinking that might make it easier to just do it yourself rather than having your partner participate? What did you do uh, uh, parenting a newborn that is different now than how you need to parent your teens? I mean, a lot of times we might hand more over to the mother of the newborn because she's feeding the baby. She's she might, you know, have the baby on her hip more. So she ended up doing more. But when we move into teendom and older kids and toddlers and adolescents, things change. And so is there a way that we we can actually make that transition? Do you have certain expectations that your spouse just doesn't meet? And uh, do you keep bringing those expectations up? Do you have anxiety about uh, what needs to be done, how it needs to be done? One of my rules is whoever cares the most, whoever has the most you know, energy, anxiety, frustration, issue about something really I think should be the owner of it. If, if, if you have more anxiety about how something needs to be than I do, then you probably ought to own it so that you can you know, go – manage it the way you want to manage it. But what gets harder is where you have a lot of the issue or anxiety or frustration from it and um, and you, you need to get me involved. That's where we need to start having conversations. Another rule is we got to get on the same page, right? Nothing is more uh, important to co-parenting than, than communicating and making that work where we start to have some discussions, some questions. Some things we ought to be discussing is what kinds of parents do you guys really want to be? And go talk about it. What roles do you do you want to play? Do you do you want to just we I think a lot of us just default to you know typical kind of stereotypical roles. Dad does the outside stuff, mom does the inside stuff. But I mean you may live in a day and age where those roles don't work for your family anymore. So what do we what roles do we need to play? And what are you guys actually willing to sacrifice? You might even want to create a little ranking process where we can rank how we're doing as parents in our areas on a scale from 1 to 10. Rank how well you're both doing as the the kind of parent you want to be. Sometimes when you measure it, you actually notice we're a little bit off. And then have more and more discussions about how to be and how to improve our co-parenting skills. If if we want to be better co-parents, we can do it. We just have to do it uh, in a way that um, we're actually intentionally focused on it. We don't need to. We don't need more excuses. We don't need more uh, reasons to blame somebody. What we need is. We need to put the co in it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. I think just as we reviewed standardized testing and the entire uh, the d- the dilemma, the situation that's going on with standardized testing, it's a perfect microcosm of I think you know anything national that we're trying to do in this country, where everybody's got a hand in it from the federal level. Um, to the education department, 
or the Department of Education to your, your local – to your senators, to your congresspeople, to the local leaders, to your governor. Every state wants to have their own way of going about educating. Sure, I think it's a brilliant idea. You got to still educate on the local level, right? But should there be standards on a national level that we all agree we're going to live up to? Well, yeah, but Common Core is a crock. <laughs> okay. So we won't call it Common Core. Again, everybody's going to have issues with whatever we do. So if you try to create a national standard, someone's going to have issue with it. And yet it still has to be applied and implemented on the local level. This is all – this is complexity. And then think of your child and think of how each one of your children are so different from the, from the next. And your child may not test well. Uh, your child may not – may be more anxious, may be more sensitive, so they're more distractible. And the minute they know a clock is ticking for them to do this section, they may break down. I have family members that are horrible. I was horrible at testing. But I got it. I could totally get it. But put me in a group. I'll lead the group. I can get a discussion going. I've I've got a lot of skills, but maybe they're not necessarily being measured. And does it matter? So in the end, how do we ever get on the same page with any of this without beating up the teachers, as we just heard? A lot of the teachers feel like they're being vilified for, for these decisions that are being made by every other person but the teacher. It's a hard situation, isn't it? And you know what? We can, again, just like we're used to doing, polarize the entire issue. But when it comes right down to it, your kids deserve better. Your kids deserve to be able to go to high school. And if they can get credit out of high school that applies to their general education in a university, for heaven's sakes, let's make it apply. Why on earth are we making them go through two more years, basically, of general education after they just spent four years of general education in high school? Well, it's harder. Well, it might be more valuable to actually teach these kids how to be students for a year. Let's have one year of being a student and learning how to learn. And you could teach a lot of great stuff, writing. You could teach speech. You could teach some you know, communication tools. You could teach study habits. You could teach rhetoric. I don't know. You could just teach a bunch of stuff to just teach them how to learn in this new age of constant information. We don't do that. Instead, we just make them do general eds. But they've been doing general learning forever, and yet they aren't necessarily getting credit. Would it not make sense that we cut the costs of our our graduate or our university programs by eliminating some of the general ed and making sure that's being taught down in the lower levels? It seems like that makes sense. Now, we'd have to agree on that. And the sad thing is, if my child's going to try to get into BYU, which, by the way, is a very difficult school to get into, has some of the highest ACT scores, highest grade point averages in the country, and um, but if my child wants to go here, boy, it would be great if that if they could also get into, you know, Iowa, get into the great universities in any state. Wouldn't it make sense that it just applies? So you got to decide, folks. Do you want do you want a national standard at all? And if so, how do we do a national standard with local implementation? It's a tough it's a tough thing. And I think in the end, 
it's who it matters the most to because most of the people, most of the kids who have parents that are really worried about this, they're going to be fine. It's I worry about the kids that don't have parents that are worried about it because they can't, they've got to go work 15 hours a day just to make ends meet. What about them? Who's looking out for them? Anyway, tough stuff, folks. And, you know, as complicated as it is, I guess hug your kids, work with your kids and their friends. And and if you're going to fight the good fight, be informed. Don't just name call and don't just assume because somebody likes Common Core that they don't necessarily like America. (laughs) And don't assume that anybody that's a teacher is just getting free money for their job. Don't. We don't need that. We need to solve the problems. Lose the name calling. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's important as a, as a couple, as a partnership, to find some time with each other. And so I've decided I'm going to put together some time savers. Ways that you as a couple could actually find more time to be together. Again, you're only given so much time anyway, right? So many minutes a day, so much time. And if you're not able to find time for each other, it might be simply because you're misinterpreting or misunderstanding what time you could be using. Uh, One of my first rules, and for years I used to teach, you know, maybe a great tool is divide and conquer. You go one way, you take the kids one way, have your wife go another way. We would divide up, but then we'd be able to quickly get through all of our tasks and then spend time together at the end of the day. Well, I've decided that was some bad advice, and I'm sorry I ever thought of it. Because what I have now come to understand is maybe what we ought to do is instead of dividing and conquering, what if we tried to unite and conquer? If our goal is to have time with each other, then let's quit Let's quit dividing in order to then eventually sometime down the road or later in the day be able to have time together. Why don't we actually spend more time today going and doing our doing our chores, doing our activities, doing our, our to-do list together? What if we could actually go run errands together as a couple and maybe go grocery shopping and either do it together side by side or actually um, break off and have one of us run and get you know, the bread and one go get the milk and we meet back and, but let's do it together. And then we get in the car and we can talk and we use the time together throughout the day. Sure. It might take you a little bit more time, but you would also finally have the time together instead of just hoping that uh, somehow you're going to find time at the end of a day. Another little uh, tool I might suggest is that you use some productivity apps um, my wife now is my – she's my executive assistant. She's basically my office manager, in fact. And uh, ever since she's been working for me, it's been the greatest thing ever. It's been so much better for our relationship. We're on the same page. She, we now are using the same apps with each other. And what I mean by that is she uses Google Calendar. I use Google Calendar. We can combine our lists. We can actually get our children's calendars uh, and our teenagers to put their calendars together, and they become part of our calendar. We have shared to-do lists. We have shared note pages. We have shared camera streams. So every picture she takes, I can see it. I can get access to it. We have, uh, you know, we can access each other's Amazon wish list if we want. There's just a lot of great technology out there that we can use to partner better and and to be together. So 
use the apps that you've got out there and, and, and take advantage of those. Another simple rule I use is to watch out for your transition times, I call them. Transition time are those moments between one activity and another. When you arrive home from work, let's say, that is what I call a transition moment. And there is time and something magical in that moment that you could leverage in your marriage. Um, after dinner, before we start cleaning up the dinner, there is a magical moment there of transition where if you would just hang on five or ten more minutes, you might be able to have a great conversation there. When you go to bed, uh, that's a transition time going, you know, from whatever, watching a show to going to bed. That time of transition is a wonderful moment where you might be able to pick up some time to spend uh, and actually connect with your spouse. So look through your day and try to identify these moments of transition and see if you can stretch more time out of those. Another little basic uh, idea I give is to share your social media accounts. We spend so much time trying to get everything posted to all of our social media to keep up with everybody else. But what if we actually shared the account together with our spouse and we had a couple's account and we could both post to it. We could both post interesting parts of our day. It's a great, great way to connect with each other. So we're, we're doing that. But it also might give us some more time because we don't have to both do it individually. Now it's something that we can see together, do together, share together. We could even then go through our page together and see what all of our friends are doing. And it might actually bring us together. And then last but not least, let's start learning that we've got to stop. It's not just about saying no to everyone else. We have to say yes to the marriage. If you want a healthy marriage where we have time together, you got to say yes. You got to make time for it and space for it. And really, we've got to figure out a way to not just have time, but make the time valuable. Um, And so that might be a great place to disconnect from technologies and just actually have some more time to talk. But it's not enough to just say no to everything else. At some point, you also have to say yes to the marriage. This is The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier family life. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Losing weight is incredibly difficult, isn't it? No matter what method you use, it may seem impossible to prevent weight gain. But uh, it's possible, my friends, that you're missing a vital aspect that uh, so many of us overlook, the mental aspect. Our minds and are, are very powerful things, right? And we are here today to learn how to overcome our minds. Think about it. How does your brain impact your eating. When you get stressed, does your brain go into autopilot? Well, here to help us with this uh, in not just uh, managing our mind through weight loss, but also managing our brain in stress and other conditions is Dr. Laurel Mellon. She's a health psychologist who founded and developed emotional brain training. She's an associate clinical professor of family and community medicine and pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. And we're honored to have her on the show today. Dr. Mellon, thank you for being with us today. What a pleasure, Matt. I'm so happy to be here with you, and I love your program. I've been listening to it and really enjoy the great work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Talk about this. I I was intrigued by your idea because so much of the time we're just getting into body, right? We're getting into the weight loss, the nutrition side. But in the end, so much of this is about our brain. 
Well, you know, the brain is the main controller of our entire being, our thoughts, our feelings, our behavior. And the problem with the brain is it's not the thinking brain that's in charge. It's that's the conscious mind. It's the emotional brain, the unconscious mind that we don't even know is operating in the background. Hmm. It's telling us to overeat. It's telling us that we're bad or we don't have any power. And these uh, circuits in the emotional brain, up until 2007, we thought we would have to use medications, go to a therapist, go to a shrink, somehow to figure out what's going on in this elusive emotional brain. And it turns out you can really organize it very, very easily using neurophysiology. And that's just what EBT, emotional brain training, does. Oh, wow. It just says to you that you are essentially in five different levels of stress of your emotional brain, not your thinking brain, because it's not the controller. And if you can identify it on a five-point scale, one, two, three, four, or five, and use an emotional technique that's right for that level of stress, you can spiral up to a state of connection where you don't even want the extra cookie. You're your most loving and productive self. Wow. The tools are absolutely magical. I loved the article. It's Because in my mind, I'm thinking, whoa, we can control this. It's just step by step by step. And I guess that's a heightening of our consciousness. Well, you know, you probably know about mindfulness and yeah. meditation, and they're very well accepted. What I want you to think of as emotional brain training, EBT, is a combination of being absolutely present in the moment, yet being able to identify the level of stress in your emotional brain. So it's kind of like the x-axis, if you think back to math, mm-hmm. kind of being mindful, but there is a deeper level, and that's how much stress is going on in the brain, because essentially we have in our brain five different drawers full of memories. And these memories tell us how to automatically respond in life. And if we're at low stress, brain state one, it's low stress, high, high joy. We have the top drawer of our brain activated and everything is hunky-dory. We don't even care about it, whether we have that piece of cake and we're really, really kind and loving people because we're drawing upon those memories. But automatically and universally for all of us, when we go through more stress, and stress is part of everyday life, we can go down to, to stress level two, three, four, and five. And when we're down in the bottom of the brain at stress level five, we have no joy and no sense of connection, and we have extreme behaviors. This is true for all of us. So this is what EBT does. Number one, you come in and you learn the five techniques so you know what level of stress you're in and how to spiral back up to brain state one. And so it makes stress management easy. But once you have these tools, you can do a lot of things. And it's it's sad to say, but for example, I had an early love affair where I fell in love with someone and they absolutely broke my heart. Mm. And I really believe these memories in the bottom of my brain when I was at the high stress levels, which is brain state four and five, the reptilian brain's in charge and they're stored there. That was probably going to block me from loving again. Because every time I'd begin to love, I would trigger those old memories without my conscious awareness or choice. The brain automatically does this. And it would get me stuck, stalled, judgmental, and I couldn't go forward. So what these tools do is, as you're going through your day, when you come up with something like someone's rejecting to you, you just use those tools and they actually pull apart the memories and let them be reconfigured in a form that helps you love rather than judge. Hmm. So those memories from the past begin to fade, and so you take charge. And, and so, because our brain is, 
it, it's it's going to go into fight or flight kind of mode, which I guess is the it's the uh, reptilian brain. And when it does in an extreme level, I guess is what you're saying. Like when we get to the fourth level or the fifth level, yeah. it 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 overrides the system and it's going. It becomes automatic responses versus a, a chosen intentional approach to life. Absolutely, and you know we all have brain states fours and fives, and they're actually good. When I've I've written several books, and you would as you know when you're writing a book and when you're trying to do something hard, there's some hard moments. And if you go down to brain state five and really try to figure something out, that's when you're most creative because you have breakthroughs. But then with the tools, you spiral back up so you get that great idea and you don't have to live in a state of stuck stress. So it's not that stress is bad. It's just we need tools so we don't get stuck in it. Yeah. Does uh, so? And, and really what becomes automatic is our, our food eating response. Well, that, that's what I'm most – quite frankly, when I was a kid, I had an emotional overeating problem, and I went to UC Berkeley undergraduate, and I became a nutritionist, and eventually I ended up uh, becoming a faculty member at UCSF, and I began specializing in obesity. I thought, my gosh, I have all this knowledge about nutrition. I hadn't become a health psychologist yet, and I'm going to solve this problem. Well, the problem is that in this country right now, the reason that obesity rates are still going up, now 71% of us are overweight or obese, is because we've been focusing on the wrong brain. There are basically two major brains inside of our heads. The thinking brain, what we know, analyze, plan, decide. And I knew everything I could know about nutrition and how much I should exercise and when I should exercise and what I should do. And that plus five cents gives you a nickel. (laughs) Because the wires are circuits that control our three major brain structures, the amygdala, the the uh, the the fear, or in other words the fear center the appetite center and the reward center they're all in the emotional brain and if that brain is at stress level four or five really stressed all of them flip the switch toward weight gain so we've been focusing on telling people what to do in the thinking brain wrong brain we got to move it to the emotional brain and you rewire those patterns so you stop even wanting the extra food wow. It really is. I mean, I see trying to turn off those brains as well. One of the most difficult things we do in trying to get couples talking. And so, you know, that, that's why I mean, I could I could see a lot of use for this there as well. Right. The idea is that a couple um, in order to emotionally connect and look at all the literature on relationships and many people come into relation into emotional brain training into our telegroups and they do it because they are not connecting with their children emotionally. They're not connecting with their, their spouses uh, emotionally, maybe even their coworkers. Actually, one of the hardest things we do with our emotional brain and these tools is to emotionally connect because this is how it looks. In order for me, like right now, to be able to emotionally connect with you, I first have to have my thinking brain, my, the mindful part of me, connected to my emotional brain. So I'm first and foremost connected to myself. So I feel safe. I feel authentic. I'm vibrant and I have integrity. That's a foundation. Then I need to emotionally connect with you. And you could be at any level of stress. Stress And my emotional brain, like all of us, has no walls. So if you're stressed, it's going to flow into my brain. And so I'm even going to have to be better at being able to stay connected and use these tools. And then if I can open the emotional pipeline and connect with you, I can have love, 
I can have sensual sexual pleasure, I can have loving companionship, and I can be forgiving. And so that's why couples come, because the hardest thing we do is intimacy, and it's the most important thing we do. Mm. It's so interesting, and our brain kind of, again, at a level that we're not even really paying attention to, our brain is driving so much of our, our failure. It is. And we, the other thing that people come in, I was in a telegroup uh, last night, and a woman came in, she said, I finally got it. And I said, well, what did you get? She says, I, I got that I keep on repeating the same patterns over and over again. I keep, even if I stop overeating, then I start drinking too much, or I stop, start on technology too much, or spending, or hoarding, or clutter. I just have one excess after another. And she's, I said, yeah, that's because your set point or your brain habits down there in the fourth or fifth drawer of your brain. And those circuits were encoded before the age of three or later during stress. And they do not go away by thinking. You can't think your way out of those circuits. You've got to melt them with these emotional tools. You've got to melt them away. Great, uh, great melt insight. Them. Melt them. We'll take yeah. a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Lauren Mellon about um, EBT in emotional brain uh, training. We'll come back. If you go to her website, ebt.org, you can find out more information about how to to start using EBT in your life. And we'll come back. We're going to have her walk us through this. How do we do it? How do we get down to that fifth drawer and turn some stuff off? This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. the Matt Townsend Show. Is it time to lose weight? Could it be that your stress levels uh, are at play? Your very stress could be driving your overeating, and yet your brain, because it's stressed, starts to just play the, hey, time to eat, time to save, uh, time to shut down the system so we're not going to lose any weight here. You got to get to a level of understanding your brain, especially at an emotional level. It's called emotional brain training, and it's a wonderful um, tool to help us understand. And I think in the end, we can unleash a lot of our problems by by getting better understanding of our emotional brain. Dr. Laurel Mellon joins us. She is a psychologist, a health psychologist who has founded and developed an emotional brain training program. If you go to ebt.org, you can find out more about it, uh, even take assessments and, and see how you can start to re – I guess – I don't know if you reboot the brain, but at least understand and, and move yourself from a stress level to a lower level of stress. Dr. Laurel Mellon, welcome back to the show. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. Is that is it you don't you don't reboot it. You end up you have to move from one level of stress in the brain to a to a lower level of stress. Is that the goal? I totally love your question because you're right on both counts. So let's say I take a nice deep breath and let's just do that right now. And I put my hand on my belly or on my heart and I check in with my body. That's where we experience our emotional brain. That's where we read our stress level. And so I say to myself really kindly as I'm walking along, I say, you know, let me check in with myself and see if I can spiral back to a state of joy, get out of this stress. And I say, what number am I? Am I at one? Uh, Feeling present with a slight bit of joy or glow. Two, feeling good. Three, a little stress. 
four definitely stressed or five stressed out where the bottom of the brain is in charge. And if I say, let's say I'm at, 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 at three, and I say, great, I'm just going to accept that. No, I think I'll spiral up. And I, I spiral up, and I'll t- show you how to do that, that tool. It turns negative emotions into positive ones. But every time I spiral up to, back to a state of connection and well-being, I not only make stress management easy, but I change. I actually rewire my brain so it's easier and easier to spiral up. So essentially, you're changing the brain's long-term habit. So instead of its habit or set point emotionally being in stress, it can be in that state of connection and joy. So you're doing both things. You're reconsolidating circuits, erasing them, and making them into more effective circuits in the past. And secondly, you're actually getting a great spiral up to a different level of stress in the brain. And you're training the brain. Right, you're teaching the brain to do this. I know that's great. Yeah, it's and you know what? There are only five tools, and I first learned them when I first I first use them with children to go to the root cause of obesity. And when it comes to obesity, we are doing such a disservice to 71 percent of our population by telling them if they just ate uh, unrefined foods, they would have a solution. That's not the case because when the brain is in stress. Uh, apples, oranges, uh, meat, potatoes, anything like that is just like not what we want. We have unstoppable drives from stress to eat artificial foods, refined foods, as well as other excesses. It's just how the brain works. And so instead of fighting Mother Nature, you spiral up to brain state one where you don't even care about the extra cookie. So people are judging themselves because they can't lose weight. They can't lose weight because they're not mastering their emotional brain. And they're not taking charge of it. And knowing you can't lose weight um, stresses you. So it's self-perpetuating. It's self-perpetuating. All of a sudden, these judgments come. I'm bad. There's something wrong with me. I'm, I don't have any power. Well, we do have power. It's by learning five simple tools that anyone can learn so they can take charge of their emotional brain. And then it becomes fun. Yeah. <laughs> I was working with, last night. There was a group who had lost 40 pounds. These are telegroups, which because the emotional brain is a social brain, you learn the tools online, but then you use them in small groups with a coach that there's no therapist or no MD or uh, it's, it's simply a coach is there with six other people and you practice them for an hour a day. Pardon me, an hour a week. And what happens is you come together and you support each other. The brain wants love most of all. So we were in this group last night and someone said, you know, I've lost 50 pounds, but I just got a really bad uh, eye, eye injury and I'm in a lot of pain and I'm really scared. And when I, I noticed that I started to get hungry again, hmm. and I said, well, let's listen to you spiral up. So she spirals up back to brain state one. She's, oh, I feel so good and I don't even care about the food. So essentially, you you need emotional tools to deal with emotional circuits and emotional circuits that are causing our obesity epidemic and everything that comes with it, diabetes, all the other problems that go with it. I'm I'm assuming that this, um, just because our brains are so smart that we, if we're not careful, I mean, you really have to spiral up and emotionally change your state. You can't just pretend spiral up, right? I mean, exactly. I could see people faking this to please their therapist so they can get out of the room. But in reality, you're not going to feel great 
and turn off this, these mechanisms in your body unless you actually change your emotion. That's not right. And, you know, quite frankly, Matt, the, the issue is that many people say, well, you know, we, we have to think our way out of problems. And that was really, that's how cognitive behavioral therapy came about. Right. There was a belief that Freudian was, you know, the Freudian way was wrong. We couldn't do anything with this big lump of an emotional brain and an unconscious um, way of operating. So we had to think. Well, it turns out that thinking is actually pretty good. It's just, it's just way weaker than changing the emotional circuit. Mm. And up until now, if you said to yourself as you walk through your day in all five different stress levels, how do I feel, you would have probably gotten in trouble. Because if you were at brain state four, the feelings get stuck. We get depressed. We get numb. We get ashamed. We get hostile. And so feelings aren't that safe unless you have these five tools because they're processed differently, different techniques for every level of stress. Would you like to use the tool for for stress level three, and I'll show you how great it works. Yes. How simple it is. Yeah. Okay. So each, so each level has a tool, right? And that, and Each level you, has a tool. So you have to recognize the level you're on and then use the tool to get to the next level. It, to get to spiral back up to yeah. one. That's okay. where the brain wants to go. Yeah, let's go. And that when you spiral up, you, you, you affect the physiology in every cell of your body, so you have a huge That's great. Shift. Okay. So I want you to take a nice deep breath. And remember, it's about your loving, safe connection to yourself, to others, to the spiritual. That's what you're connecting with in the emotional brain. And you say, hey, take a nice deep breath. And again, put your hand on your heart or your belly. Really connect with yourself. It only takes about 20 seconds. You can do it at work. You can do it in the car anytime. And you say, hey, I get my safety from connecting to the deepest part of me and knowing my stress level. Am I at one? Feeling great. Two, a little stressed. Pardon me, two, feeling good. Three, a little stressed. That's what we're looking for right now for you, if you can be. Four, definitely stressed. Or five, stressed out. What would you guess for yourself? Just play Mm. with it. Three. Great. I'm a three. Okay. Okay. So... (laughs) In 2007, we figured out the tools precisely, and in 2012, we put it on in an online program so you can just have an app and a website and do it, and we made it really, really simple. So all I'm going to do is say a few words, then you repeat the words for eight sentences, and then see what words bubble up in your mind. It's like complete the sentence you used to have as a kid. So the, the, the four, there are eight feelings. You move through anger, sadness, fear, and guilt, and all of a sudden, you know, the, all of a sudden the sunshine comes out, and you're in grateful, happy, secure, and proud. Let's give it a go. Yeah. Are you still game? Yeah, okay. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to write them down so I remember. Well, I'm, you don't have to. I'm going to do. Oh, it you're going to coach me through. Okay. Coach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> here, go for it. I I'm going to say it, and I need you to say it, and you're using your thinking brain. Okay. And then you're going to let the wisdom of your emotional brain fill in the blanks. It'll bubble up some words. Okay. I feel angry that. So say, I feel angry that. I feel I, angry that. Now pause, that beautiful pause, and you're letting your beautiful emotional brain complete the sentence. It doesn't have to make sense. Just a few words. Um, I feel angry that I can't get everything done. Perfect. Wonderful. Now we're going to do the second one. Okay. I feel sad that. So repeat those words and then wait for the emotional brain to answer it. I feel sad that.
I'm not doing all I can. Wonderful. So you've done two great. There's only only a few more. Okay. I feel afraid that again. Repeat the lead in, and then wait for the emotional brain. I feel afraid that I will let people down. Beautiful. One more negative, and your brain will naturally become positive. I feel guilty that. Now, that's not shame. It's just I have some power here. I could do. have done that differently. Mm-hmm. I, I feel, feel guilty. guilty that. I'm not. It's almost the same. I'm not doing all I can. Now take a nice deep breath, and the brain naturally goes to the negative to protect you to see if there's some something that could be a threat to you. And once you've cleared away all those four feelings, now you're going to turn your attention and notice you can connect to yourself more deeply and all of a sudden say, I feel grateful that. Repeat that. I feel grateful that. I'm learning how to change. Beautiful, beautiful. Take a nice deep breath. And I feel happy that I feel happy that it's this easy. <laughs> I feel I really do secure. I feel secure, even a little bit secure that I feel even a little bit secure that I can do this right now. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. And I feel proud that I even yeah. a little bit proud. Yeah, I feel proud. Or even a little bit proud that I did it on radio. <laughs> Woo! That's great. So that works. If you group learning these tools, what happens is because the emotional brain is has no walls, your joy gets gets spread around. So it circles around the room. I can imagine that you're... No, all my team here, they're giddy. My team are just, <laughs> they're all, they were all doing it. Well, some of them were. Some weren't. But Great. yeah, and the the wonderful thing about that is that that is not just old fashioned feelings. These are emotional circuits that control every cell of your body, and because of that, their health, happiness, productivity, and loving relationships are going to be stronger when they're in that that stress level one in those beautiful memories, and they'll have a much better day. So each level has a, has a protocol that you just take it through, and then you to go to the next level. How long would it take somebody to go from a damage control level five um, to one? All the tools take you right to one. But so, how long does that take as a process? They they could take three, four, five minutes. Uh, yeah, so um, it depends. Um, but three to four, five minutes. Between yeah, somewhere between one and five minutes to get to brain state one. That's great. And in that state, like let's say they were hungry and they wanted a blueberry muffin, when they get to one, they did, the drive turns off, and the reason it turns off, and this is extremely important, I think, particularly to our audience today, Matt, is that when we're at Brain State One, the reward centers light up for higher order spiritual rewards. Hmm. So these these rewards of doing the right thing, there are seven of them in EBT, and you actually train your reward centers so they stop wanting the various excesses that we all get into that are artificial, whether it's technology or food or yeah. drinking or whatever that is, train the brain to naturally crave being authentic, being in integrity, 
having vibrancy, intimacy, spirituality, mm. and it's, ultimately It's like Maslow, freedom. right? You get to the higher need. We've, we've moved to the higher <laughs> ability. It That's is. Cool. It is exactly like that. And what happens is the overall goal, and this is out of Rockefeller University, and uh, my devotion is to seeing the, the potential for us to each take control of our emotional brain and move up our emotional set point. And when the habit is to be more in one, still free to move through all the, all the states, because every time you go down to four or five, you actually refresh yeah. your emotional architecture. You get stronger and deeper. Adversity actually helps the brain get stronger. But if we uh, can just start by voting with our own emotional brain and have more of us use emotional brain training, get that set point up, so we can be more, even a stronger force of love and light in the world. Mm. Who knows what could happen? Oh yeah, love it. Well, it's helped. It's helped me, man. You moved me from three to one or three to two, I guess, and then I'd have Great. to go through the two protocol. But uh, Dr. Laro Mellon, thank you so much. This is interesting, important insight. EBT dot org is the website they can go to, right? Absolutely, and we have offers there where they can get into a telegroup, they can do it online, and they can learn these tools and really take charge of their emotional brain and their lives. Good stuff. Good stuff. Appreciate you again, Dr. Laurel Mellon, and uh, your great work there at ebt.org. We'll take a break, folks. Just elevated. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy, whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point. You need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues really are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful simply because do you notice it makes you almost find your shame it almost makes you it made me look at my guilt it made me dig deeper into what i am doing and what i'm not doing with my own life those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress so the the greatest value of what i think i just saw with uh, dr mellon's work is that it gives me i took a space and in that space i went and started to make change when we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings something's going to change something's going to happen and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that so make sure you take time to look at your emotions you are not your emotion if you're mad you're not mad you're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. We'll take a break. 
It's the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world, helping you become the best you can be. We'll be right back. 